This is the CineSnob Podcast. Welcome to episode 126 of the CineSnob Podcast. I'm Jared Kingery. I'm Cody Viafania. Cody, game two of the uh, NBA Finals is tonight, Sunday. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, is it? We haven't been paying attention. <laughs> it's uh, featuring um, the uh, Golden State Warriors, Natch, and uh, everyone in San Antonio's favorite trader, Kawhi Leonard, absolutely dominating as we had seen him do mm-hmm. before he quit on the San Antonio Spurs. Um, are you are you paying attention <laughs> to, to any of this at all? At the uh, uh, as a I'm, Spurs fan, I'm not. I look. I this is going to sound really bad, but. Uh, watching Kawhi makes my stomach hurt. <laughs> like I just, <laughs> I just can't handle it. Like it, it hurts. Like it hurts me. Like I can't. Uh, it's really hard for me to watch. Um, especially just you know, I, I, I don't know. I mean, it may be too localized here. Uh, but you know, it was such a weird thing to watch and go through yesterday, and in like the er, yesterday last year, and the writing was sort of on the wall for months and months, and I think everyone was trying to tell themselves that it wasn't going to happen, and that it was a, you know, things would be smoothed over and ironed out, and it just, it just, it was the whole thing was just so bizarre and surreal, and uh, yeah, I mean, I went to that game where he came back and 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 we booed the hell out of him for every time he touched the ball and it felt good. It felt cathartic. And then uh, now watching him uh, close to winning a championship, I see that he indeed won and uh, that was petty. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. You know, um, uh, I guess the, the worst part of this as a Spurs fan is uh, seeing how that would like, I I don't know. I, I think it's probably already, all the way forgotten, but a championship would totally cement the fact that he quit on his team. Oh yeah, uh, is totally in the past because it, you know, it, it, the NBA is all about what you're doing right now. Uh, uh, but yeah, it would it would totally destroy that that uh, narrative that was there for the Spurs at least that this guy was a fucking quitter. Like, oh no, he's just an elite basketball star now who has his pick of where to go. Yeah, uh, well, I, I mean, look. Best case scenario is that he loses in heartbreaking fashion, and then does the same thing to the Raptors that he did to us, and leaves for. Some... I mean, I, look. I don't blame the. I don't have no blame for the Raptors at all. Oh no! I mean, I don't wish wish ill on that fan base, but maybe he uh, maybe he goes to L.A. Uh, with LeBron, and then has a, the same shit year that LeBron had there. Yeah, I think right. yeah, I I do think he would land at, on the Clippers before he would land on the Lakers, but um that could be equally as funny. <laughs> if I'm, he I'm, What's the, what are the odds you think uh if if he wins a championship with Toronto he stays? Cuz they could they could run the East. Yeah, I don't think he stays. Um at all. No, I I think that he really wants to play in LA and um and like even when they asked him questions about um about you know where did what he's going to do next year he kind of deflected and there was even that um I, I didn't actually watch the video i only saw it referred to but i guess his sister did some like instagram live thing talking about toronto and somebody in the background who they believe to be his uncle said something along the lines of like guy we all know he's not going to be here next year or something like that i didn't actually see the video so i can't attest to that being accurate i just it was just something i read on social media so um I don't, I don't know. I just don't think he stays. I think that, you know, the whole the, the, he didn't want just to get out of San Antonio. He wanted to go to L.A. 
and that was his whole thing. He wanted to pick where he went, and yeah. so yeah, I don't get it. Um, look, I, I, and I don't know. I'm not an elite uh, athlete. I don't know. You really, were, you were fooled. By that, but, <laughs> but I mean, I, I would, I would imagine that um, you know, in a winning culture like was here, uh, you know, a contending every year. And the ability to make maximum money. I mean, he he walking or getting traded, wanting the trade. He left what, like thirty million on the table. Yeah, I think is is something because uh, the supermax was like one hundred and twenty seven million, if I recall correctly. Maybe I'm maybe I'm inflating that, but either way, it was a lot of fucking money, and uh, <laughs> and to to have it, uh, uh, you know just gone like that. I don't, I don't, I don't get it. I don't get it. I don't get how the relationship, I mean, if the relationship was that soured, then, then who knows? But, uh, it, on the surface, it doesn't appear to be, it appears to be more of a desire to play in LA and, uh, more so than anything. I tend to think that history is on, is, is, is an accurate representation of things. And, and the fact that, Everything that happened in his attitude towards the franchise is so against everything that has ever happened before it uh, in terms of, uh, you know, like I think the only player to ever like publicly ask for a trade or even privately was LaMarcus Aldridge a couple of years ago and then Pop and him ironed it out and now, you know, LaMarcus is part of the team. And I, I guess Pau Gasol may have asked for one this year when he wasn't being used, but... It just doesn't, like, the whole story is just doesn't jive. Like, the whole idea that the Spurs would be trying to rush back a player from injury when he was, when in, like, not, in, like, misdiagnosed. Like, the Spurs are, haven't been known to be the most careful organization in the league. They got fined for resting players. Like, it just, it just, none of it checks out. Some, like, I can't wait for the 30 for 30 someday on what actually happened because something is not right in terms of um, the story that we're getting, I feel. Yeah, there's definitely more to it, and this is, it's the uh, it's the biggest Spurs uh, one that got away that's ever going to be. I, I think that's ever going to happen to the team. I mean, because you know, th- there was the time when when Duncan was seriously flirting with leaving, you know, twenty years ago. Yeah. Uh, but you know that this has been the first time that it's been something that uh, <laughs> that was uh, an it was the first outright traitor. You know, outright villain that the team, you know, the uh, hero to villain sort of thing. Uh, and then to know that if he wins a title, it's all that shit's going to get erased. Yeah. That's the worst feeling to me. Like, uh, fuck. It's well, like when, when Kobe came back from like a rape, uh, a rape accusation and then started winning titles. Like, ah, oh, fuck. That's sort of how it was. I don't know if you paid attention earlier in this year with Derek Rose. Derek Rose had this, had a similar thing happen. And came back this year and like dropped a fifty point game and 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 there was this huge like hero comeback narrative. I'm like, uh, are we forgetting something here? Like, well, do you remember uh, that was that O four series um, with uh, the point four? Mm-hmm. Uh, when, yep. That was when when Kobe was like having to fly in from Denver, mm-hmm. like from his rape trial <laughs> during yeah. the playoffs, yeah. and he'd get like this hero's welcome. I mean, it was just disgusting. Yeah, it, uh, that was a. That, it's, I wonder if that would even fly now. I mean, yeah. I. I mean, I do. I mean, Derek. Look at the Derek Rose story. Yeah, I mean, uh, I mean, if you had a like a, a legit 
like number one, number two guy in the league that had was on trial for rape, like would he be allowed to play still now in 2019? I mean, oh fuck, what a what a weird time that was. It was so terrible. It was, and I and I, yeah, I don't know. I don't know that any. <clears throat> I mean, I don't know that any major like i mean you because, because there's no equivalent right you we've seen it happen to athletes but never like the I biggest like, and best athlete in the sport and, well, you know, I mean, that, yeah and, i mean arguably kobe bryant was the best player in the league at that at that point mm-hmm. in time yeah. uh you know and uh, a legit mvp candidate every year and he's on trial for rape during the play <laughs> during the nba playoffs uh, and gets to the finals. That's when they lost to Detroit, I believe. Uh, when Detroit had like a team of misfits all together. But yeah. I, anyway, I, we're getting way off track here. I, mm-hmm. I'm I fuck the NBA finals right now. I don't. I just don't. <laughs> care. I just don't care. I don't either. I and it, and when it's on, I I just can't. I can't do it. Like I just can't watch it. Like I was at. I was at a. I was at a place that had it on the other day, and like every. Like every Kawhi shot him, I just was like, it was like a knife to the stomach. Like, ugh. Like, just, You're just watching him dominate. Uh, yeah, it yeah. sucks. <laughs> yeah. And that's in that shot that like hit off the rim like four times. Like that was. Oh, that the the first ever game seven uh, buzzer beating win. That one. <sighs> or no? Or are you talking about the finals? I'm talking about the one from the uh, that sent them to the finals. Oh yeah, that yeah. I mean, it was a. Tie. Or no, wait, that was that was against Philly. Not yeah, against that, Milwaukee, yeah. So it sent him in this yeah. conference finals. Yeah, and it was like the first ever. I read there was the first ever like uh, buzzer beater, buzzing buzzer beater winner of a game seven or something like that. Something crazy like that. It's just the ball hit the rim four times and just slow motion went in and ugh. just destroyed the city of Philadelphia. <laughs> yeah, yeah, <sighs> and San Antonio probably. <laughs> yeah, well, we've had we've had our fair share. Yeah, it's it's funny to talk about this acting like some spurned franchise who 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 in our lifetime have won five championships. It's a little hard. Oh yeah, to no, I mean I'm I'm just now realizing that too. Is it like oh we're now twenty years removed from the first championship, and uh, like and just five years removed from the most recent one. So it's like eh, we're all right. Yeah, it still sucks, but I I I gave my I always gave myself a. A personal five-year window uh, after the uh, 2007 finals. A five-year window of not being frustrated about anything like that because you won a title and you're like, all right, five years, it's okay. Yeah, I, I agree with that. <sighs> but we're this is the fifth year, so next year I can start to feel like a like a spurned lover again. <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay, uh, anything else before we move on? We talked a lot of Spurs already. Yeah, I, I think I think uh, we've done enough sports talk on our movie podcast. <laughs> yeah, that'll instantly be dated by the time we publish it. So, uh, all right, let's go ahead and move on to reviews. Here are this week's reviews. First up, we have Godzilla, King of the Monsters. Senators, we believe that these titans are just the tip of the iceberg. Which of these titans are here to protect us? And 
Which of these titans are here to threaten us? So you'd want to make Godzilla our pet? No. We would be his. You sure he's gonna be okay? for dominance, a rival alpha to Godzilla. You gotta be kidding. Now, this is the third film in Warner Brothers. Do they have a name for this? It's not like a, it's not a monster verse, is it? I don't think they have an official name for it. I mean, I guess everything is tied to... Um, the monarch, the monarch stuff. So maybe like the monarch universe or something like that. But that's the that's the connective tissue. Yeah. Here. Anyway, this is the third film in this in uh, this series of of giant monster movies, uh, starting first with uh, 2014's Godzilla, followed by is it uh, 2017 uh, Kong Skull Island, mm-hmm. uh, which was sort of a prequel of sorts, not necessarily, but it was set way before, set in the 70s. Excuse me. And then uh, this one, Godzilla, King of the Monsters. What did you think of this, Cody? And what did you think of the other two while we're at it? Well, I didn't I didn't like either of them. Um, God's, the first Godzilla movie, I, I thought, just kind of wasted a little bit too much time. Um, and I didn't think that the human characters of... Uh, of the movie really held it together in any interesting way. Um, and again, I, I, like I said, it's it's one of those things where with monster movies, I really don't like spending 45 minutes with the military trying to figure out how to kill it. You know, I, I think it's I think that monster movies are oftentimes <laughs> more interesting when they're more visceral in some way. Um, and then Kong Skull Island just didn't, it just fell really flat for me. I, I think it has a really bad script. Um and I don't think the jokes work in it. I don't think a lot of the characterizations work. I like the batshit John C. Riley performance. Um, <laughs> yeah, I, there's a lot of uselessness in there. I think uh, Tom Sam Hiddleston, Jackson's terrible. Well, yeah, but Tom Hiddleston and Brie Larson are absolutely worthless. Yes, uh, they do nothing for the movie, uh, and uh, the the Vietnam stuff is a little overplayed, but. Uh, I, I actually ended up. I I did not like Sk- uh, Kong Skull Island. I did like uh, the first Godzilla film, mostly because it was more of about like an epic destruction scale. Mm-hmm. And I think that's uh, we'll get into it later. But I think that's something that's really missing in this one uh, was just the the kind of scope that that Gareth Edwards uh, put into that film. Yeah, I I, I think that. Um... I think that the 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 biggest pro- so obviously one of the draws to this movie is going to be, um, you know it collect it's a collection of a bunch of different monsters from the Godzilla canon, right? So it's you know Godzilla and Mothra and Rodan and um, Ghidorah. Uh, yeah, there's uh, I don't know who the mammoth one is, and it, it, um, I forget who they are, but. And I, I and I think it would be one thing if it delivered on monsters beating the hell out of each other, and then that was it. But it tries to have, like have its cake and eat its to eat it too in some ways with 
balancing monsters fighting each other and then a human story that is just so convoluted uh that it just it just sort of makes it, it ends up not making a whole lot of sense i think that the running theme here of wasted and useless characters continues here <laughs> um yes of for sure and, and and i think i even may have a disagreement on who is the most useless in here because um I feel like I never quite understand Charles Dance. Well, let's exp- let's explain the plot a little yeah. bit because well, so so it's five years after Godzilla basically destroys uh, San Francisco, but it's uh, he was doing it to protect you know he was fighting off the bad monsters mm-hmm. essentially. So that now there's a, a team that's this monarch that's hunting him, trying to you know to find him. I guess they did find him, but then. Uh, there's uh, Vera Farmiga's character is uh, working on a device, some sort of fucking MacGuffin that <laughs> magically can communicate with these uh, the Titans, as they're called. And uh, she and Kyle Chandler are separated and they lost a son in the first Godzilla film. You know, obviously, um, uh, you know, thousands of other people died, but this is the one we, only one we care about, I guess. And uh, <laughs> Millie Bobby Brown is their daughter. Uh, and then it's the, the movie begins with the discovery of Mothra uh, with Vera Farmiga's character in deploying her talking, her like universal translator thing. And then a group of eco-terrorists showing up led by Charles Dance. But eco-terrorists in a sense that like they're trying to protect I don't get what they're the doing. Earth? I don't I don't either. And I don't nor do I understand why the turn with Vera Farmiga happens. Uh, I don't understand that the that partnership. I don't I don't get it ever. Well, so so the the whole thing is supposed to be that these titans are uh awakened to restore order to the earth. Dude <laughs> I'm, I'm. I was watching this movie, and it's like I'm like, whatever. This is just nonsense, or whatever. And then Vera Farmiga get, goes onto this monologue about how the Earth is destroying itself, and the monsters are being unleashed to restore balance. And I'm just like, oh fuck! Like, why are we doing this? <laughs> oh yeah, it's like it's it's via TV screen. Like it's, she's. It's so heavy handed, man. It's like, and I I understand that. I guess the the thought is that. Godzilla has to have some socio-political meaning um, just because of the it, it's just inherent in the creation and character of Godzilla but it's just so so on the nose well yeah I mean the, of course Godzilla is born from the Japanese um, you know being uh, having the atomic bombs dropped on them in World War two and the the fears and, and things that come with that uh, but yeah this you know it, <laughs> I don't know how many Godzilla movies you watched as a kid, but they they were goofy things. You know, the first film is is supposed to be fairly serious, but as it gets further along in the series, it just becomes cartoonish. And there's been probably at least three or four solid attempts to rebrand Godzilla as this serious parable uh, in the last 20 years. And it just I, I don't think it ever really seems to work. Uh, I don't either. Rebranding this thing as a a serious, serious thing because it's, you know, so many people uh, know Godzilla as this guy in a rubber suit 
who was fighting you know, and destroying uh, you know cardboard buildings, and now you again uh, you you have this destruction on an epic scale that would that would alter the balance of the world, uh, and, and it just you're supposed to care about three human characters and and think that Godzilla is the good guy. I I just don't. I don't know that it ever it's it's ever as dramatic as it wants to be or as ever serious as it wants to be. Well, I and I think that it's I mean again, it's I think that everyone is still trying to capture the original film, you know, in the symbolism of, you know, nuclear, you know, you know, nuclear holocaust basically and I and and I I I get that you have to try to maybe try to try to find a way to to create some like narrative mirroring of that but they haven't quite hit on how to do that in a way that makes it seem relevant because i think the idea is that you can make godzilla a parable because it was originally you know back in the 50s that's that's what it was but but then it got goofy as hell and and it, I, I think that it just hasn't that they're trying to recapture that but but they're not coming up with good ideas to do it and i i just I just had so many problems with with plot holes and um and there's just a lot of weird stuff that bothered me like I didn't quite understand why all of the monsters are bringing hurricanes with them everywhere. <laughs> like why is Washington DC flooded? Like I like it like it like they show a news footage of literally Washington DC in in a total like I mean it's in ruins. It's in yeah. absolute ruins. But like, in water. Yeah, but, but yeah, and then like the the uh, the dome of the Capitol is on fire, and the Washington Monument is crumbling. I mean, it, to be fair, like these are all events that would that would shake the world to its core. You know, like nothing would ever be the same ever, ever again. Like millions of people have died <laughs> in this movie, presumably, and and it it just boils down to like cheering for a monster. It's it's kind of the same way with. Uh, um, like what was it recently? Uh, X Men Apocalypse. Yeah. Uh, do you remember how how like many many people would have died in that movie? And I think that's oh, yeah. I, I mean, like think about the climax of this movie where well, I, and spoiler alert, but Godzilla is literally just spewing radiation <laughs> everywhere. Like like literally, he's, he's nuking himself. <laughs> yeah, and, and it the problem is it. I think a, a matter of scale with these things. Like it's. It's weird to say that that this monster battle movie, if you can even call it that, I don't really know that it's a monster battle movie. I think it really fancies itself that, but I don't think it's the badass monster fight that everyone thinks it is, or that the filmmakers think they're they're kicking out to us. But I just think the scale is too big. Like, yeah, you you know this is like they're saving the world from from this. <laughs> Spoiler alert: uh, Gidor was an alien, uh, but and it, but it doesn't make any sense because, okay, great, Godzilla won, but he literally poisoned the eastern seaboard with 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 an incredible amount of radiation. <laughs> well, and, and but and, but in the and you can tell that the scale is too big because of like the globe hopping that happens, where yes. a character in one scene from the next can either be in Antarctica or on a submarine or in Mexico or like it, it just it just changes so quickly to the point where there's one scene, I don't know if you remember this, but one scene Kyle Chandler is about to leave on a helicopter and the next scene he's like back in a submarine, I think. Oh yeah, it was like uh yeah, he was going to leave an oil tanker 
or no, like an oil rig that served as some like headquarters. And uh, like he was just going to hitch a ride on a military helicopter. And then, then, oh, wait, there's Mothra. Now we get in a submarine and they ended up like in the center of the earth. Yeah. It's, <sighs> it's just, there's just so, there's so much going on, but like no development happening. So, and, and look, I, one thing I will credit it for, because I, I, I think that um, it may not deliver on the fights necessarily, but I do think it delivers on some cool looking imagery. Like, um, like Ghidra or whatever the hell it's called looks super cool. Like, I mean the, the character design or the monster creature design is really cool. And there's some cool shots of it. There's cool shots of Mothra and you know, a lot of the action sequences happen in the rain and in the dark. So it's really hard to see what's going on. But um, I, I think that there is some cool imagery in there, but like, None of the human characters are fleshed out and, and bless his heart because I feel like Kyle Chandler's like actually giving it a lot of effort. Um, and I love Kyle Chandler and I wish I do too. I, I wish better for him. But I, I do think he is the best part of this movie. Well, one of the things uh, that, that I want to go back to on the visuals, like the visual effects, for one thing, is the way it's framed. There's a lot of like uh, like like medium shots on Godzilla. Yeah, like a lot of zooming like, too. Like, but like just like his head, like his head and shoulders, and it really takes the scale out of things. And I think you know, for for I know you didn't care for for the first one, but that was the thing that that Gareth Edwards did in the first Godzilla is kept the camera mostly at ground level. Yeah, because isn't this the biggest version of Godzilla there's been by quite a by quite a long shot? I I don't know. I know it. I don't think it ever in the Japanese films ever really had a defined scale. But yeah, I mean, this is supposed to be like, you know, a skyscraper-sized Titan monster thing. But you know, when you get a close-up on his face or like his head and shoulders, like it doesn't really that scale doesn't resonate at all, and it just it throws everything off because you you have no idea. You know, they're they're basically you know destroying Boston in the climax, and it uh, it only takes place in about two blocks according to the way the geography of the movie is laid out. Yeah, and I don't think it works because it, it it just feels too small for what it is. Um, like you said, I, I did dig Kyle Chandler. So you said we might disagree on who the most worthless character was. Yeah, for me it was Charles Dance, just because I never understood what his group is doing. I don't understand what his motivations are. I don't understand his teaming up, and apparently he's connective tissue to the next one. Maybe. Yeah, there's a post credit scene with Charles Dance. And I just, uh, I just don't understand. Like, I don't understand what his character serves. Just in the, even in the context of the own of its own movie, I don't think it's clear. Yeah, I still think uh, wor- uh, when it comes to worthlessness, uh, Millie Bobby Brown is has nothing to do. Uh, there's, there's a point. She's basically the pawn that gets dragged between. Um, uh, Kyle Chandler, who plays her father, and Vera Farmiga, who plays her mother, they're separated, and then they end up on different sides of this whole Godzilla thing. But nothing that that nothing changes Vera Farmiga's motivation that that uh, Millie Bobby Brown's character does. It's all just circumstantial, and then she's someone they have to go find. Right. And then in the climax, she starts using this the Orca translator device. In a way that doesn't make any sense. 
mm-hmm. uh, based on the way it had been used before. Right. Yep. It's just it doesn't it just the logic of this this film doesn't make sense within itself because you know the these these monsters are supposed to be you know have some sort of biological function but like a, a you know a, a whatever that oxygen destroyer bomb was mm-hmm. uh, so there's a there's a missile that's apparently can destroy oxygen which it didn't destroy the water, which has oxygen in it. <laughs> uh. <laughs> How do you know that's not pull a pool of hydrogen? I mean, it was just it would. I don't. I don't understand the the. <laughs> I don't. I don't think you can do that. But whatever. Um. Uh, anyway, it, but like missiles don't hurt uh, uh, these creatures. You know, they they fire these missiles at them, and fucking O'Shea Jackson Jr. Gets to like all he does is shoot at these monsters and it doesn't work. <laughs> That's mm-hmm. his entire role in this film. But then like they can bite each other and it hurts. I, I just the the logistics of it don't make sense. Like can you can only a monster hurt another monster? Why can't these missiles hurt them? Yeah, it, I, yeah, yeah. Why why can a why does a, a nuclear bomb that has a concussive blast as well as radiation just deliver the radiation to Godzilla and not the concussive blast that destroys everything else? Anyway, it's there's just a bunch of shit that doesn't make sense. And and look, I'll give you a lot of leeway with Godzilla. Like his atomic fire breath. Hey man, I don't I don't know how it would work. I don't want you to explain how it works. But I'll give you that. But then when you when you trip on your own fucking logic within the film, then I'm going to I'm going to be pissed off. This is something I was going to ask you about because I really think that this might be the, the inherent problem with Godzilla is that when your hero or pro or like, you know, then the name of the movie, the namesake, the reason why you're coming to the movie is a monster. The monster has to have some sort of quality to it that that makes you either root for it or root against it or bring some sort of feeling elicit something from its audience rather than just be a presence and i think that that might be why on its face godzilla is maybe a tough thing to crack because i think you have like two ends of the spectrum right so you have something like sorry cloverfield where you have (laughs) where you have a a, fuck you fuck you (laughs) where where you have a, a monster that is is the inciting reason to tell a human story. So the the point of Cloverfield, it's a monster movie, but it's about the humans, right? Because you're watching them band together and the and the monster is just a presence in the movie. And then on the other side of things, you have like King Kong, where King Kong is a character that is complex, that actually has humanity to him, has a personality of some kind that you can either latch onto or root for or something like that. But with Godzilla, Godzilla is supposed to be a major presence, I think, in a movie where you're supposed to have some sort of feeling towards it, but yet there's also the human story that is mixed in with it, and I don't know that it has enough... Godzilla doesn't have enough personality or qualities or quirks or motivation or anything like that to really buy into Godzilla as a hero of any kind. Right, there's no... um, There's there's no... You know, you don't you don't really get to see him do anything. You don't get to see him 
protect like you see King Kong do. But they but they treat him within the dialogue of the script as if he is the protector, as if he is someone who cares and on their side and on their team. Right. Especially with like Ken Watanabe, who's worships at the ground of Godzilla, but you don't really understand why. Um, no, I think at any point. No, I, I totally agree. There, there's there's little to no characterization of the monster. And I get that he's not going to talk or, or do anything, but to at least express some sort of, uh, you know, innate uh, humanity or or at least respect for humanity or something that 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 could make you cheer for him would be ideal. Uh, but this this just doesn't do it. And, it, you know, we're only told he's a good guy and that's the only way we know he's a good guy. Yep. Um, and, and same with Mothra. Mothra is, you know, a gentle. Horny butterfly. <laughs> Moth. Yeah. Uh, not a butterfly. <laughs> Whatever. But, uh, oh, did you notice the uh, uh, Zhang Ziyi uh, cameo as her own twin sister? No. I, it, you could be forgiven. Oh, wait, wait. Yes, yes, yes. You I remember for- thinking, yeah. You could be forgiven for thinking that, like, this was just another character hopping the globe at a moment's notice. But uh, she plays her own twin sister, which is a callback to uh, the original Mothra, where these, there's like these, uh, you know, island twins that conjure Mothra up. It's Mothra's a weird movie. Uh, <laughs> but uh, yeah, I was like, wait a minute, is that? Oh, they're doing the twin thing. Were those? Did we see that in like a in like a Riff Tracks thing? Once? Yes, we saw Mothra. Yeah, Rift Tracks did Mothra a couple That's years right. ago. Okay, so it was like the little little tiny things that were in the cages, right? Yes, yes. Okay, yeah. yeah okay, that's that's, I, I, <laughs> that's the. It's a reference to that. It's not obviously not the same. <laughs> you know, not the same uh, execution, but it's a. I, I assume it's a reference to that. If if it's not a reference to that, that'd be stupid. But well, I think it is because I, my friend Jerry was telling me that he appreciated the reference to the '60s Mothra, so that must yeah. have been it. I mean, Mothra's a weird-ass movie to begin with. Yes, I I do remember that. (laughs) Uh, Okay, all right. I think we talked enough about this. What's your grade for Godzilla, King of the Monsters? I give it a C minus. Um, it's a, it's it's bad. It's it's bad. I think it. I think its worst quality is that it's boring. Um, these God, these monster movies. The the biggest sin that a monster movie can have is being boring. Uh, you you literally have a giant monster to play with, and when you can't make a compelling movie out of that, you've got problems. Yeah, a C minus for me too. I I just. I hate all the little details that go into it that that don't get answered, like that weird flying headquarters they had. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, like it seemed to be cribbed from the Avengers, and then like they ripped off from uh, Independence Day, and just all kinds of stuff that was mushed together to make this piece of shit. <laughs> and I I don't think anybody comes off very well at all. I, like you said, I think Kyle Chandler tries, mm-hmm. but he doesn't elevate anything. Bradley Whitford just annoyed me. Uh, as the like the smarmy comic relief because I, I'm like I get it you're the guy that's gonna comment on everything, yeah. Um, and then uh, uh, Thomas Middleditch was was worthless. Uh, mm-hmm. Sally Hawkins gets smashed by a monster <laughs> <laughs> pretty early. She has an early exit. All right, let's go ahead and move on to our next movie, Rocket Man.
I didn't see this, Cody, uh, but you did, and this is the mm-hmm. Elton John biopic mm-hmm. uh, starring Taron Egerton, who I'm not a big fan of, but I'm willing to I'm willing to come on board if this is if this is a good film. So, what did you think of Rocket Man? Well, um, I I will tell you, it made me a fan of Taron Egerton. Um, really cool. He's phenomenal. He's very 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 good in the movie. Um, and I think that uh, it, there, it, there's going to be a lot of natural comparison to Bohemian Rhapsody, not just because of the era or, um, you know, the, it's a musical biopic, but because uh, when Brian Singer got fired off of it, Dexter Fletcher came in and finished the movie, and Dexter Fletcher is the director of Rocketman. Um, so it shares a director, um, not by credit, but by, you know, actual work done. Um <laughs> So I, I think that it, it veers from Bohemian Rhapsody in a couple of different ways, which I think make it a far better movie. Um, first and foremost, Taron Egerton is doing all of his own singing in the movie. Oh, really? Um, yeah, yeah. So there's no lips. I mean, I mean, you know, it's lip synced in the, in the sense that he's not performing live in the movie, but he is doing all of his singing. He recorded everything in the studio. Uh, and, you know, he doesn't, he, he sounds a little bit like Elton John, but not like a carbon copy. And I feel like I would rather have a legitimate performance than I would a lip sync uh, any day of the week. Um, well, and I don't, you, mean, you mean, you mean lip syncing to the original songs, not the, not the one yes. that's uh, not like not his own track. It. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So he's lip syncing to his own singing versus lip syncing to, you know, Freddie Mercury. Uh, as is done in um, in Bohemian Rhapsody. I don't, I don't think you've seen that either, have you? Uh, no, I actually didn't. Okay, yeah, and and so I think that that I, I really appreciate the the singing element, especially because he's a really good singer, and um, and I think it works really well because you also get different arrangements of the of the songs. So uh, so while you get you know all of your classic Elton John hits, they're done a little bit differently um, within the movie, and I think that that adds a fresh new element to everything. Um, the other reason I think that it works pretty well is that there's a lot of, you may have been able to tell by the trailers and stuff, but there's a lot of fantastical elements um, to the movie. So it's not like a straight biopic where it's you've got like a clean narrative throughout. Uh, the musical numbers take on kind of like a magical quality at times. Like I don't know if you've seen um, the scene of him um, at, at his famous L.A. Uh, concert at the Troubadour when he made his American debut, but... You know, in that song, he's doing Crocodile Rock, and, like, he starts floating off of the piano, and then the whole audience levitates with him, and then they all come crashing down when the music kicks in and stuff. And it's actually a really, it's a really cool scene and a really interesting way to um, to illustrate, you know, the vibe and the electricity of everything. Um, I, I feel where the movie starts to wobble a little bit is... Um, I think that it weaves in and out of its story a little bit too uh, quickly and it feels a little disjointed. And also I, I think that in some scenes it it, it 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 feels like a musical where, you know, a, a person is responding to um a person is responding to a situation by breaking out in song, right? Um uh-huh. and yeah. so a lot of times the the lyrics and the music of Elton John are a commentary or you know evoke something that's going on in the scene and then sometimes it's um just kind of like a song and dance number or a musical performance so the way that it uses its music is a little bit like uneven and i wish they had kind of committed to something a little bit more especially using it to tell the narrative which they do quite a bit but there's also some straight up song and dance stuff so 
you know, to give you an idea of the movie, the whole movie is framed through Elton John in rehab. Um, so he shows up to rehab and starts telling his life story, basically. And so it goes from him being a kid um, to meeting Bernie Taupin, who's his collaborator who, um, who writes all of his lyrics, played by Jamie Bell, um, who's also really good in the movie. Um, and, and also one of the problems is I think that Bernie should have a... It, Bernie doesn't have a big enough presence throughout the movie. He just has his chunk, and then it's Elton kind of on his own. And it's, and it's very much a, a trip through uh addiction drugs alcohol sex and all of that typical kind of you know narrative arc that you see in a lot of music biopics um yeah but i think that it i think that it uh separates itself by really great musical performances like really big set pieces unique arrangements on classic songs and i really like when it's able to tell its story through the song like there's a really great scene where um where he basically where Elton john basically overdoses and um, during his overdose, he kind of like jumps into a pool to kill himself. And like he's swimming to the bottom of the ocean and sees or ocean. He's swimming to the bottom of the pool and sees his younger version of himself um, uh, singing, uh, you know, singing one of his songs. And then basically, you know, he's performing one of his songs while he's ODing and stuff like in the ambulance and like having his stomach pumped. And it's actually a really cool, creative way to show the narrative through song um and i just wish there was more of that uh and i think that i I wish that the movie was just a little bit more put together because at times it does feel disjointed weaving in and out of of moments and songs and and things like that yeah it's definitely uh that uh description makes me want to see it more i i knowing it's not just a standard biopic is is kind of refreshing well i will say that you do have to be a fan of you have to be okay with it being a musical because I think it is one. Um, really? So. Yeah, yeah. I would, I would, and and not in a way that like it's hard to explain because the the songs, the, you know how sometimes in musicals and stuff you'll see people kind of just having a conversation and then someone walks away and then breaks out into song. Right. It's like that, but with Elton John songs throughout. So it's it's it it has the vibe of a musical because like almost every song is like a big number as opposed to you know like you know like in bohemian rhapsody for example there's like a 20 minute scene of a concert and a live performance or there's footage of them in the studio you get the studio stuff in rocket man but you also get musical numbers where like you know he's like for saturday night's all right for fighting it's it, it starts off as him as a kid performing in a bar and then you know he he gets up and goes into like an amusement park and there's everyone singing and dancing with him and stuff like that. Or, you know, um, like goodbye yellow brick road is a scene where he's having an argument with Bernie and, and Bernie gets up and leaves a restaurant and starts singing goodbye yellow brick road. So like, like it's sort of like, uh, it, it feels like a hybrid between like an actual musical and a biopic. And I think that um, I think that if you're going in expecting a straight biopic like Bohemian Rhapsody, you may be struck by how much of a musical it really is. Um, that being said, it's done in sort of a fantastical way. That's also a guy who's present in his own songs and his own musicals, using his own music to kind of show his life in some way. All right, what's your grade for Rocket Man? I give it a solid B. Um, I, I think that it's, I, it's again, it's a much better movie than Bohemian Rhapsody. It's a much better performance, in my opinion, than Rami Malek uh, in Bohemian <laughs> Rhapsody. 
Um, and uh, like I said, it made it made me a believer and a fan in Taron Edgerton because I think he's very, very good in the movie. Yeah, I've only seen him in uh, the the two Kingsman movies and um, Eddie the Eagle. And then mm-hmm. Eddie the Eagle, he was a little over the top, and I I just don't care for the Kingsman movies at all. Yeah. Uh, all right, cool. Uh, well, let's go ahead and move into our last movie, Running with Beto. You know what? The camera's all messed up on this thing. Why? I don't know. We're like in a dream. There's something very inhumane and un-American taking place right now. Beto and I were like, okay, what can we do to change this dialogue at a national level? And when you have an opponent like Cruz, that just seemed like a very easy answer. The hard left is angry. They're energized and they're coming for Texas. Out of that conversation came this idea of, what if we ran for Senate? I'm traveling to all 254 counties to meet everybody that I can. He's going to be live on Facebook for 24 hours straight. This is either my best idea ever or my last idea ever. I went up to Beto and I told him, I said, here's the deal, man. You better bring brains, backbone, and balls to the table or go home because of all the negative attack ads on Beto, because we're not punching back hard enough, everyone is telling you you're doing it wrong. I just really miss the kids. I'm ready for it to be over. Now this is a documentary about the Senate uh, bid from El Paso Congressman Beto O'Rourke, who uh, of course ultimately lost to uh, the incumbent Senator Ted Cruz uh, last uh, November. And this is a documentary leading up to that as the the grassroots campaign was built. Uh, This premiered at South by Southwest and is now on HBO uh, streaming. What did you think of uh, Running with Beto, Cody? So I I like Running with Beto quite a bit. Um, I I think that, um, you know, us being in Texas, we sort of had a front row view to everything that happens in the movie because it was a very big story here in Texas um, and, and caught the eye of, you know, it got some national attention as well, but you know, his campaign was so interesting to see, to see it unfold, um, you know, from the perspective of a Texan, um, especially a Texan living, you know, in a red state for in our entire lifetime. So um, well, not, not my entire lifetime. That's true. Know. In my entire lifetime. Right. Well, um, it really started with uh, uh, George W. Bush in 1994. We used to have Democratic governors here, Cody. Yeah. The last, the the governor before, Ann Richards was a Democrat, and she was like a, a crazy, like, like grandma, shit-talking lady Democrat. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah, and so, my, so I should say my lifetime, but... Um, it, and I think that what it, what it really does is, I think it, it, it does a really good job of showing why Beto was such a magnetic figure for the people of Texas. Um, it shows uh, his ability to to communicate really well. Um, and so you see him and I like and I sort of like the arc of it starting where he's, you know, you know, at the beginning of the movie, he's doing town halls for 10 people um, or mm-hmm. he's talking to like a coffee shop of 10, 15 people. And then by the end of it, you know, he's got how many were at that rally in Austin? 60,000 people or something like that? Oh, yeah. I mean, it was it was it was massive. Yeah. And, and so you see the rise of him. You see the his ability to go viral, but you see the person behind it, too. So you see a guy who's really struggling with um, with campaigning and being away from his kids and his wife 
Um, you see, I think I think one of the things that made Beto so interesting, which he's kind of dropped now that he's running for president, is um, is he was very raw and and honest in in like curses a bunch, <laughs> and I think yeah. It, and it was always fun to watch him uh, do his like stump speeches and curse in them, you know. And there was the famous concession speech where he cursed as well on CNN, unbleeped or whatever. And and I think that, um, and I think that I, I like seeing that inside look at him. And also, I think that it's got um, it, it shows it also shows the perspective of some of his uh, supporters who are set up in different parts of Texas helping out with his campaign. I, I loved that woman in Bull Verde, by the She's, way. She is awesome. <laughs> <laughs> she she is the best part. She's the best part of the movie, I think. Yeah. Um, I, I wish I could remember her name. Um, uh, I don't remember. But yeah. Yeah, she was. But she's like a, like a gun-toting Democrat. Yeah. Um, and she's a... She, she's a... And she's, she's like... She's... A, I guess sort of, I guess how you were describing Ann Richards, I guess. Uh, oh, yeah. Where, well, yeah, Ann Richards was like a, a, a bit more of a lady about it. But yeah, this it's kind of the same thing where it's like, you don't like it, fuck you, you know. Well, yeah, well, and then she has the, uh, like, she has a great uh, line about, like, he, she said that she was talking to Ted Cruz's campaign manager and oh, said yeah. she was going <laughs> to ask him if he was circumcised. And then she's like, well, if, if. If uh, if he wants to control what's going on in my pants, then I should be able to know what's going on in his. Right, right. It's just, so she's just awesome. She's this wealth of amazing, you know, like uh, like phrases and it was it was. I, I love spending time with this woman uh, in, in the documentary, and so I think that it does a good job of balancing the campaign, uh, meeting the people along the way, and those who were supporting him, and you know. I saw this in back-to-back days um, with uh, Knock Down the House, which was the uh, Netflix documentary that focuses on Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. Um, that doc is a little bit better, but they're very similar in, then they're, in that they're kind of like two underdog. They're both underdog stories, essentially. And, and uh, even though Beto didn't win this race, I think it does a really good job of, of illustrating the tides shifting a little bit, you know, because of, uh, you know, because of Beto, you know, smaller, uh, smaller Democrats were able to turn certain areas in Texas because people were going out and voting for Beto, voting straight Democrat, and they saw some turn of some seats and stuff like that. So, um, yeah, it was, I mean, uh, being someone who covered this election extensively and which is probably why I'm not as, uh, a big a fan of the film as you, it was much closer of an election uh, for the Democrats in the state than it has been in years, years. And, uh, and and I think a lot of that is put on Beto's back and uh, and probably more of it is put on Donald Trump's, honestly. Mm-hmm. But but Beto is a is a is a definite figurehead for this. Mm-hmm. So I didn't mean to interrupt you. I'm, no, 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 no. no. No, that's good because because you do have that perspective of you know watching because I mean you probably watched it unfold and saw the tides turning from when when Beto was an outsider to all anyone could ever talk about. Well, look, uh, you know, there's there's uh, this documentary doesn't really offer me anything new, right? Um, and to that point, I was not really enjoying it because it was just sort of a recap of of the last you know two years of of news coverage that I, as a journalist, have participated in. Um, you know, it starts off, I think one of the interesting things that that maybe the movie left out, because it's really Beto-centric, and I, I know it's called Running with Beto, but 
you know, there was always going to be a Democratic challenger for Ted Cruz. Um, and for a long time, the presumed uh, challenger was going to be uh, Julian Castro. Right. Uh, former mayor of San Antonio, former uh, HUD secretary. And when Beto started gaining steam, that really threw off uh, the Castro. Like Castro was was not interested in running, you know, trying to compete with that. And uh, to see now that that, you know, that the Beto magic that was there hasn't really transferred over to the presidential race. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's kind of he's kind of getting mocked. Um, now look there, I, I, ethically, I can't comment politically on, uh, mm-hmm. on a choice, but there's a certain amount of, of, um, you know, dislike that people had for Ted Cruz. I don't think that's a secret, right. uh, as a person, um, and, you know, obviously policy, but as a, as a person, I think he's, you know, widely talked about as one of the most hated people in the Senate. Which mm-hmm. is which is kind of hilarious, and then Beto comes in with this this uh, sincerity that I don't know plays uh, off as completely sincere hmm. from time to time. Um, you know, maybe maybe that's just an effect of me watching it so much or seeing it so much. But you know, the 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 uh, was it the Vanity Fair cover? Yeah, that that got mocked mercilessly. Uh, because of the the you know him and the dog on a dirt road with a truck and saying how he like was writing in a journal about about needing to run for president I'm like all right man yeah like the 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 myth making is over you know this doesn't need to keep going um, because it doesn't it's not like that's just a weird political way to to do things but who knows what's going to happen in these political times I mean we're in fucking uncharted territory right now. But I, I think that that as a result of that, um, you know, seeing where it's happened now, it's a little, it's a little um, kind of a, a rose-colored glasses look back at this campaign uh, because you know it doesn't whether or not he was going to win, and I don't, I, he was never going to win. You know, it was going to get damn close, and he got pretty damn close, but he was never going to win. And I think the the belief that we've all always had, at least, you know, the people that I work with in this business, is that this was always just a dry run for presidential candidacy. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, having won the Senate, if he had won the Senate, you know, it would have been a huge, a huge significant victory that I think would have sent him on a presidential run anyway. Well, and the only reason I disagree with you on that point is that that's not how it started. You know, how it, the, the problem with Beto for so long was that people in Texas didn't know who he was, which is why he went on that 254-county run where he was trying to get his name out there. Um, and, like, you you can see, like, uh, flashes of articles about how, uh, like, in the, in the documentary about how people just didn't know who he was. And so the dry run for presidency, I get maybe as Beto mania was taking over. But True. initially, I feel like it was a sincere a guy who sincerely wanted to challenge things and, and you know like there's footage of him turning in the signatures he got to be on the ballot and to go from where he did at that point in Texas to locally at least i have never seen people talk more about a, a like a, a a state candidate ever i've never seen people politically engaged in that way i've never seen i mean the voter turnouts were were 
marginally bigger than they've ever been and so i think i think that i think the point of the documentary is to is to show how lightning caught in a bottle and i think that it's effective in in that sense well i i i I guess maybe i'm just a little more cynical because i just kind of see it as a it's a bit of an obama redux um sure but you know could you even name his primary opponent you know, no. I mean, that's the thing is like it's it was a Houston woman, um, something like Sema something Rodriguez, I believe. It's just like a, like a Houston progressive, someone who was going to be cannon fodder essentially right. for Ted Cruz and that, that he came out and was likable and, and for whatever reason captured the zeitgeist, whatever it was, um, you know, that was I, 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 uh, you know, I, I'm on your side there saying that it didn't start out this way. But as it evolved, this was. This was the forefront of a national movement. For sure. And, and, it evolved and, into that. And, you know, by the time this race was over, uh, he was going to run for president no matter what. And that he stumbled out of the gate is a little disheartening because it's, you know, it, it's it's not a pleasant thing to see someone who legit has, I, I think, the you know, obviously the best interest of his constituents in mind and the people that want to vote for him and, uh, you know, kind of you know, pulled himself up by his own bootstraps and, you know, played on the charisma that he has. But the fact that it, um, you know, we're looking back on this uh, time and it it was, it's kind of an unsuccessful bid uh, that, well, I mean, it's definitely an unsuccessful bid, but then it's, it has no success beyond that uh, at this point. I mean, we're still a ways away from the 2020 election, but um you know, to that point, it almost feels like a campaign video as opposed to a, a, a you know, supposedly incisive documentary. Right. And I, and again, I feel like that a lot of again, it was a lot of post stuff because, again, he had, by the time when this when this movie premiered, he had not publicly announced that he was going to run. Um, but I'm sure within the t- I mean, again, the, 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 the documentary footage started prior to everything really taking off. So. You know, I I, 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 could, I can certainly see how you could think that. Um, and I think for me, the, the interesting part wasn't so much watching the story unfold because I knew the story, but it was, you know, getting Beto in his own words, but also seeing this, this sort of um, enthusiasm that he sparked within the state. Um, uh, I mean, no, he, I mean, he sent Ted Cruz running scared, which is oh, yeah. something that no one ever expected uh, a Democratic Senate candidate to do. And it you know it was it was kind of fascinating, uh, whether or not whether whatever political side you fall on, it was fast. I mean, you, and you see Ted Cruz in here throwing the old chestnuts about you know don't California up our Texas? They like tofu and you know it was tofu and silicone is what and, he said. and dyed hair. Yes, dyed hair. <laughs> you know, and and I think it it runs a lot of parallels. Not to spoil a different documentary, but um, if you've seen Knock Down the House, it focuses on three or four women who um who tried to you know unseat a seated um incumbent and you know three of them lost and then you know Ocasio-Cortez was the one who broke free it broke through and a lot of that movie is too about the tides turning and showing that they can you know these people can be challenged uh, incumbents can be challenged um and uh, and I think that they're kind of like very close cousins in terms of um, in terms of the narrative they try to tell. And I think that, uh, having said that, Knock Down the House is the better movie, but I still like this one um, a bit. Yeah. All right, what's your grade for Running with Beto? 
I give it a B, a solid B. I give it a B minus. I don't think it's bad. I just think that that it's a little bit old news. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, obviously, being in uh, in Texas and in the news business has has made me probably not the audience for this. I still think it doesn't tell anybody anything that they didn't know. Uh, but you know, maybe probably no one follows politics as closely as someone in my position would. Sure. Uh, okay, that's going to do it for this week. Next week, Ooh, the, boy. the <laughs> uh, allegedly, supposedly final iteration of this X-Men franchise. Uh, it's like the last wreckage of this franchise. Well, I guess New Mutants is still out there. Who knows where that'll end up. But Dark Phoenix, the final X-Men movie under the Fox umbrella before it gets absorbed by Disney and... I believe the first one that doesn't have X-Men in the title, right? Isn't it just titled Dark Phoenix? Uh, yeah, it is just titled Dark Phoenix, but technically the title of X-Men, the second movie was X2. And oh, I think okay. I think later they added the subtitle X-Men United or whatever it was. Yeah, and, then, and isn't this the uh the first movie that Kenberg has directed? Yes, the first uh yeah, Simon Kenberg who was a longtime producer of mm-hmm. this series and i think was he a screenwriter also yeah mm-hmm. yeah um he's supposedly the guy that 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 uh mentored josh trank and brought him into the star wars universe and then that imploded yeah i mean skinberg was a writer on fantastic four so yeah yeah um i i haven't heard anything for real about this i've heard rumors that it's terrible yeah uh i don't have a lot of faith in the trailer and and presumably, presumably, this will be the first X Men movie without Hugh Jackman, like even a, yeah. even a tiny cameo. So mm-hmm. yeah, so uh, I will be very interested to see. Uh, Apocalypse was a I hate so it. bad. That was look. I never hated X Men three, like everyone else did. Uh, but when it comes to like the the actual. X-Men proper movies, Apocalypse was the first one I downright hated. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I, I acknowledge that X-Men 3 doesn't live up to expectations, but like Apocalypse and Wolverine, uh, X-Men Origins Wolverine are downright terrible movies. Uh, yeah. Apocalypse is probably the very worst, though. Yeah. And uh, yeah, so I think that's all we have because they changed the release date um, on late night. Um, oh yeah, our yeah. screening is this week, but they changed the release date to the fourteenth. Yeah, um, which I'm curious about. I'm a sucker for that kind of like in like inside baseball showbiz stuff. Um, I think you, I told you. You told me, yeah, you just watched the Late Shift the other day. I did, yeah. So I was listening to uh to Conan O'Brien's podcast, and uh, he had Jimmy Kimmel on, and they were talking a little bit about Letterman and Bill Carter, and um. And and Kimmel is a huge Letterman fan and hadn't seen The Late Shift. And Conan was like, yeah, you know what? It's surprisingly really good. And so I was like, oh, I had been meaning to read that book and, and uh, a long time ago. And then I had forgotten that it was made into that TV movie. So I watched it and I enjoyed it quite a bit. I love um, the book that Bill Carter wrote about Leno and Conan. Uh, it's oh, yeah. a really, really good book. Um, so I kind of like that that type of stuff. I wish they would do like a like an SNL movie because I love reading like SNL books and backstage stuff on that. So you know the I, I believe that uh, the War for Late Night is the book you're talking about. Yeah. Uh, 
I don't believe that uh, Conan is ever quoted as a source in that book. Mm-hmm. But it's like it's clearly he was the source. So yeah, I, so have you ever listened or watched? Um, uh, I know Conan O'Brien can't stop yeah, the Bill, commentary. Bill, Bill, oh, I haven't watched it with the commentary now. But Bill Carter is is in one of the shots. Well, yes, he is. And and then when that happens in the commentary, it's Conan and Andy Richter and Rodman Flender, the director. And um, and Rodman asks, hey, is, is, is the war for late night like accurate? And Conan was like, well, I haven't read it. And Andy is like, I've read it and it's very accurate. So <laughs> so uh, it, like Andy said that it's extremely accurate. And I didn't doubt that when reading it. Um, oh, yeah, but, for sure. But it's it's a, it, like if anyone at all was interested in that Leno Letterman, uh, excuse me, Leno Conan stuff, that book has some great stuff in it. One of the things that I uh, never really quite uh, knew until I read that book was how heavy, heavily Fox was courting Conan. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, just offering him loads and loads of money for a late night show in yeah. the early two thousands. Yeah, there's a uh, there's a great anecdote, um, and of course Conan talks about that on that co- uh, podcast with Kimmel because he's like he did it, he stayed because he wanted to be loyal to NBC who screwed him. But uh, but Kimmel tells an anecdote about how somebody from ABC told Kimmel that they were going to make a run at Conan to replace him, and they and, and apparently according to Conan. They never ended up even meeting with him, so they just told Kimmel that, and then it didn't do anything with it. <laughs> Weird. What? A, it, that, yeah. I remember. Uh, it didn't. Wasn't that the time when, uh, like, he did a Kimmel did a drop in on Leno's show and like mocked him? Yeah. Like, uh, no, I, I think that I think it was the other way around. I think that uh, uh, Leno did a um, did a video piece on Kimmel's show. If I'm if I'm remembering that correctly, I, I, I thought it was Kimmel on video, like talking live with Jay. Oh, it was the other way around. Yep, you're yeah, right. Yeah. It was like it was like a bit that Jay was doing. Yeah, I and mean, and had Kimmel on video. It bit yeah. him right in the ass. <laughs> yeah, that whole thing was nuts. But yeah, the the Fox stuff is is super interesting in there. And uh, um, I th- I you know what? I think we're like exactly ten years from the premiere of uh, Conan O'Brien's Tonight Show. Wow, I need I to read it, that book again. Then I think it premiered in uh, June of twenty of two thousand nine. Did I tell you about? Uh, it started. It, it was yesterday. Yesterday was the ten year anniversary. Wow, son of a bitch, man. When uh, I think I, I've told you this before, but our listeners may not know. Uh, Conan O'Brien is the stand upest of stand up guys. Like, uh, so so back when he was back when he got the Tonight Show, he did the press tour, um, which I think is when you met him, right? The first um, time, yeah, yeah, for the first time. Yeah, so you met him when he did the press tour, and then I, I, someone wrote an article locally that said that he, you may catch him at the Alamo, and I was like, I don't know if this is real or not, but I'm going to go to the Alamo just in case. And so me and my brother went to the Alamo, and then sure enough, like Conan comes walking out of a car and starts looking at stuff around the Alamo, and we were the first people who walked up, asked for a picture, couldn't have been nicer, and then a giant crowd formed, which, of course, Conan talks about how you know, he loves that, you know, he, he will never decline anyone for a picture ever. Um, and then, so he goes on the tonight show, uh, you know, he gets, he gets sent away basically. And then he does the tour, the tour date that you and I both went to, um, in Austin. And in the middle of that tour, I had a a pic, the picture that I took with Conan. Um, I printed it out at Walgreens and I shipped it to a venue stop in Chicago that he was going to be at. And I was like, and I wrote him a note and I would just ask for like a signature and stuff. And then like two months later on my doorstep, 
he got it at Chicago, signed it, sent it back, and so I have a framed signed picture of me and Conan. Oh, you know what? I don't think I ever heard that story. Oh, that's, really? Yeah. It says awesome. And it's and it's inscripted too. So it says to Cody, I'm lucky to have a fan like you, your friend Conan. Oh. And it's it's my most prized possession. It's the coolest thing. It's so awesome. You have you have some very uh I remember that photo. You have some very mid two thousands hair. I do. <laughs> yes, I do. <laughs> a lot of bangs going on in that bad boy. Yeah. Uh, I've actually I don't know, have you ever done the fan letter thing? I like, you know what? I tried with Conan and I never got anything back. I've had three success stories. Um I've had Conan. So one day I was, I was, there's like websites you can go to where you can send like self-addressed stamped envelopes to people. And I was like, you know what? Screw this. I'll send like 10 out. And I got three back. I got one from Conan. I got one from Nick Offerman. I got a signed headshot and a, and a, um, a the woman of the year, Ron Swanson pamphlet. He sent that too. <laughs> and then one, a really cool one is I have a, a personalized uh, Judd Apatow, um, Oh, nice. So, so like, I, pr- I found a picture of him, and he's wearing, like, a, a ridiculous, he's wearing, like, a Puma shirt and shorts and, like, a, and sneakers. And he, he signed it, in retrospect, I regret my clothing decision, and then signed <laughs> his name. You know, uh, uh, that reminds me, uh, when my dad turned 50, my mom wanted to get him a bunch of autographs. And uh, she sent out a bunch of birthday cards like to celebrities to get them to autograph him. Like he got one from Jay Leno and a bunch of other people. <laughs> um, and they all came to my house because she didn't want him to find him. And then uh, he, he, she had sent one to Howard Stern. Mm-hmm. He's, a big, he's a big Howard Stern fan. And they sent it back with a letter that they said they didn't even open it because they don't accept submissions. <laughs> like he's, Whatever, man. But, they think she was sending a writing packet in? I, yeah, yeah. My 50-year-old mom was sending a writing packet into Howard Stern. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, well, we got way off topic there. But uh, if you want to reach us, you can email us at podcast at cinestob.net. You can find us on Twitter at Cinesnob, Facebook Cinesnob Critic. Listen to our other podcast, Re-MCU. Uh, we're re-watching and re-evaluating all the films in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. We've got two episodes out right now. Iron Man and the Incredible Hulk. Iron Man Two will be coming soon. Uh, we'll, and then we're going in a release order. We're not going in that uh, their their own chronological order because that would be way too confusing. Yeah. Um, but yeah, doing uh, find us on uh, uh, iTunes or whatever they're calling it now. iTunes is dying. The podcast app, Apple Podcasts, uh, Stitcher, uh, Spotify. Mm, uh, you know, a, a tape that we leave somewhere. Mm-hmm. Uh, anything We're else? We're doing a lot more of that lately. Yeah, leaving tapes on the corner. Uh, are we still running the contest, or has that ended yet? No, it's still running. So if you go to cinesnob.net, you can enter to win in a prize pack of Blu-rays. All you have to do is leave us a positive text review and five stars on iTunes or Apple Podcasts when that takes over, and send a screenshot, and you are automatically entered to win. Yeah, we've uh, we've gotten a, a, quite a few entries, so... Uh, it's a it's a good prize pack. It's Lego Movie Two, uh, the Meg, and what's the third one? Um, b- 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 oh, glass. It's glass. 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 Yep. So yeah, a nice little uh, superhero-y, action-y prize pack there. So uh, anything else before we go, Cody? No, I think that's it. Uh, so we'll see everyone next week after we survive uh, X Men. Oh, excuse me. Dark Phoenix. Dark Phoenix. Dark Phoenix. The, the, the last of the X-Men films, allegedly. But anyway, on that note, I'm Jared Kingery. I'm Cody Viafania.
Thank you for listening to the Cine Snob Podcast. To read reviews, interviews and more, visit cinesnob.net. See you next week.